How's your sense of direction? A bit fuzzy, brilliant. Mine, just so you know, is amazing. I mean, it is, it is razor sharp. It never ever goes wrong. In fact, it is so good that I know, uh, when we are going the wrong way because the signpost is facing the wrong way. Uh, unfortunately, this can often get me into trouble because if it's one of those signposts that is facing the wrong way but will then lead you eventually in the right way, I just don't follow it because I know that it's sending me the wrong way and then we get lost. It's a recurrent conversation in our household. Um, I also, by the way, have car park dyslexia if you ever meet me in a supermarket. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this, car park dyslexia is when uh, the signs change from their amazingly well-crafted British font, all perfectly laid out, to rubbish car park signs uh, that are impossible to follow, and I then end up in the caravan park at the services. It's always worse when you're following a particular route... And then the road gets closed, possibly uh, like this morning if you've come past the half marathon route, and you end up on a diversion, possibly on a tiny back road in Devon trying to find your holiday cottage. I know I lived there for many years, so uh, I know what some of the back roads are like, and the hedges get taller and you then have no clue where you are. Well, today's many chapters in Exodus feels a little bit like a strange diversion. It feels like we've suddenly got lost somewhere along the route and we've taken a different path and suddenly we're not quite sure what's going on. Let me try and explain. You see, we've been on this great adventure The people of God have been held captive in slavery. Moses has uh, spent 40 years hiding out with his father-in-law. And then, and then he goes back in. And the battle commences, the, the battle of judgments and plagues. And the people get released. We're on this amazing, epic adventure that's spanning generations. But then we get to chapter 20 and we hit diversion 1. Chapter 20, commandments arrive and it's kind of like, okay, great, that that feels like this is appropriate, we need some commandments. But then we get into altars and idols, law regarding servants, personal injury law. I mean, it's beginning to sound like a solicitor's firm. Uh, Property law, we've got social responsibility, as it's titled in the NIV, but it's probably not the sort of social responsibility that you think of. It's a completely different thing. Um, We've got laws about justice and mercy. We've got Sabbath laws. We've got festival laws. And then we get back into the action because Exodus chapter 23 verse 20, an angel suddenly reappears and we like the angels because then kind of we're back on action and everything's going to be alright. And the covenant is confirmed in chapter 24. So that's, that's diversion number one. But thankfully we get back on track. But then we come to chapter 25, having thought that the adventure was back on, but no, we are back on another diversion on some random country lane stuck in a wilderness. 
The diversions go uh, something like this, and let me give you a little image just to help guide us on this particular diversion. First of all, they're asked to build a sanctuary. They're to give their offerings, their gifts, and really good line, actually, as we continue to talk about giving in this place. Exodus chapter 2, verse 25. They're to give their gifts, their offerings, from everyone whose hearts are prompted to give. Folks, if your heart is prompted to give to the work in this place, please give. If it's not, please don't. Okay? I'm really serious. God loves a cheerful giver. If he prompts you to do it, do it willingly and generously, but do what he's asked you to do. Exodus 25. They're told to to make a sanctuary. It's going to be a dwelling in the midst of the Exodus where God will come and dwell with them. Right at the heart of this dwelling is to be the ark. There's to be a table where they're supposed to put bread. Exodus chapter 25 verse 10. Uh, sorry, Exodus chapter 25 verse 30. There's to be a lampstand made of gold. Then there's to be what's described as the tabernacle with the holy place and the most holy place. Seems like strange titles to me and they're separated by a curtain and in the most holy place is going to be the Ark of the Covenant. There's going to be an altar which can be carried with poles but this is not going to be made of gold, it's going to be made of bronze. There's going to be a courtyard with lamps in it and the lamps are to be kept burning. And all the way through this diversion it then gets worse because they then start describing things like ephods that the priests are supposed to be wearing. I'm pretty sure you wouldn't want me to be wearing an ephod this morning. It would be quite difficult to move, I think. Um, Just so you've got your geography, um, this is the most holy place. Uh, the holy place and then you've got the kind of tented area or the tabernacle all the way around um, and this is the kind of portable uh, altar where they would have made sacrifices thankfully someone's built a replica uh, so we've got an idea of what it might have looked like I mean it was a movable tabernacle a movable dwelling place a movable Temple for the people of God to come and worship and to meet with their Creator. It's always useful, I think, just to get an idea of what sort of scale we're talking about when um, when we picture these things. So I drew it over the top of this church. I hope that's kind of helpful for you. Um, so the bit in the middle, this is the most holy place, uh, and the holy place here, and then the curtain that goes around the outside. And you can see that it's a little bit longer than the length of this church, probably to the, from, from the window uh, to the steps just before you get to the disabled parking bays. That's, according to Google, about 150 feet. So it was quite, it's quite a lot of it. But is it just a diversion? Or is it helpful? 
Is it things that we can kind of flip through in our readings? I don't know whether you do Bible in a year. I've just finished mine and I've just picked up the Holy Trinity Brompton one, which is really great because it's got commentary by Nicky Gumbel and then little additions, which are quite funny, by um, Pippa. Um, is that her, that's her name, isn't it? Yeah, good, thanks. Uh, at the end. I wonder whether when we get to these bits in the Old Testament, we just kind of flick past them because they're just a diversion, aren't they? Well, in order to see whether it's a diversion, and some of you will of course know where I'm going to be landing with this, let's get a bigger view because I think sometimes the bigger view helps us to understand the detail. So backtrack with me. And let's take the widest possible view of Scripture. If you want this list of verses afterwards, by the way, please don't scribble them. You can scribble them down if you like, but if you want me just to email, email you a list, I can, I can do that. Because I'd love you to look at these for yourself as well. Right back at the beginning of Scripture, there is this beautiful picture This picture of what God has created and how it was supposed to be. At this point in uh, Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve have gone astray. And God comes looking for them in the garden. And there's this, this wonderful line in the middle. It just says that the Lord God was walking in the garden... In the cool of the day. What a picture. That the the living God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, takes the time at the end of the day to wander through what he's made in search of people. And he calls out to them, Where are you? And then there's that whole conversation of them hiding away because they've done wrong. And Adam and Eve are then excluded from the garden, excluded from God's presence. It goes through Genesis then and God calls Abraham and he shapes them into a people and they get taken into slavery. And then we pick up at the beginning of Exodus and they get called out of slavery And we land in this strange set of words. Exodus 25, then have them make a sanctuary for them and I will dwell among them. Exodus 26, make the tabernacle. A tabernacle is a tent in its most literal form. But it's also a dwelling place, a place of abiding. You see, this is the place where God will come and live amongst the people. If we jump to the end of Exodus, it says this, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. A cloud. The glory of the Lord rested on that place. Everyone could see a cloud by day and fire by night. It was in the sight of the Israelites through all their travels. But then we have 
as we jump through the rest of the Old Testament, we have this strange set of ideas. And the strange idea comes in Ezekiel chapter 10, that the glory of the Lord doesn't continue to remain, but leaves, departs the temple, the physical recreation that they made of the tabernacle. So God comes and rests and dwells, but then he leaves. But in John chapter 1 verse 14 it says this, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He came and resided, he walked the earth here. And then Jesus says, Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. He's not talking about the physical temple. He's talking about the temple of himself, his body. And in Hebrews it says this. He entered the most holy place. That bit behind the curtain. Once for all by his own blood. He is the mediator of the new covenant. Folks, it is impossible to understand what Jesus has done if we simplify the cross to just an act of love. It is absolutely fundamental to how we understand the gospel that the cross is tied into the old sacrificial system. One act of one man giving his life, pays once for all. If you take that out, there's no gospel left. And the picture that we have in Mark is that the temple curtain was torn in two, not from bottom bottom to top, but from top to bottom. And jumping to the end of the future hope that we have, God's dwelling place is now among people. This is talking about our future hope when heaven comes to a new earth. God's dwelling place is now among his people. This is our future hope. But folks, if that's where we leave it, I think we've misunderstood the core tenant of the transition from the old to the new. So let me land with this. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You see, none of this was a diversion. None of Exodus was a diversion. None of these strange things about lampstands or altars or tents or most holy places or mercy seats. None of it was a diversion. All of it is a picture of what Jesus has done for us and then does in us. And my prayer for each and every one of us is that we would allow the Most High God to dwell in us.
Your bodies are temples, dwelling places, tabernacles of the Holy Spirit. Together, we are the body of Christ. Folks, the church is not without power. The church is not without authority, but it is not based on an institution or a man at the front wearing a dog collar or a bishop or any tradition. We carry authority because the Holy Spirit lives in us. And he has said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. So let me pray. Father God, let not a word that you have written fall upon deaf ears in us, but raise up in us an understanding and a receptiveness to who you are, that we may be filled afresh with your Holy Spirit and allow you to dwell in us. Amen.